Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month we hear from the first American woman to walk in space, Catherine D. Sullivan. She recounts how she helped launch, rescue and maintain the Hubble Space Telescope, the most productive observatory ever built, which has revealed thousands of galaxies in what seems to be empty patches of space. If you can, we definitely recommend you look up the famous Hubble Deep Field Images, the deepest visible light images of the universe ever observed. This talk was recorded from our theatre at the Royal Institution on the 6th of March 2020. You can get tickets for upcoming talks and live streams by heading to rigb.org. Well, as uh, Kevin said, um, and thank you for that nice introduction, I'd like to share a few stories with you tonight. Uh, I had the incredible privilege of being part of what is still known as Team Hubble, and working on Hubble for a five-year period of time that it turns out has been a completely overlooked portion of Hubble's history. I haven't found it written up anywhere uh, about Hubble. It is, however, the chapter of the Hubble history that has made all the other ensuing chapters possible. And the engineers I worked alongside during that time are names you will never have heard of. You'll have heard of you know, maybe the names of the five of us that put Hubble into orbit and the uh, five other crews that went up and fixed it over the years and the gloriously dramatic spacewalks climbing all over Hubble. Those names tend to get remembered in context of Hubble. But again, this group of engineers whose work made all of that possible, their story has never been told. Their names and backgrounds have never really been brought into foreground. Um, some of you may be familiar with the movie that made its way through the United States a year or so ago called Hidden Figures, the story of women who were critical to the early days of the Mercury program. They were female for starters, they were African-American on top of that. Uh, lost the whole story because all you needed to know was Alan Shepard, John Glenn, here we go. Um, these engineers that I worked alongside are essentially the hidden figures of the Hubble story. Uh, and so my motivation to write this book is to put the overlooked chapter into the historical record and to give my bunch of hidden figures engineers their due as well. Um, as Kevin said, uh, I joined NASA in 1978, the first group NASA had ever selected that included women. There were six of us, uh, African-American, uh, three men, three military men, and one Asian-American, and 25 other pilots and scientists and engineers. And you won't be surprised to know that when we were all introduced to the media, the media swarmed to the 10 of us I just listed and largely didn't care about the 25 other guys. They'd seen engineers and test pilots like that before. Uh, so those guys were done for the day and off to the bar or to the gym or to whatever they wanted to do about 10 minutes after we were introduced. And the other 10 of us, the strange people, uh, we were in interviews to all sorts of hours of the evening. And so our class became known both as the 35 new guys. We were responsible for coming up with a nickname and we just couldn't come up with anything very clever for 35. Uh, but also there's another acronym in the US military circuits about TF new guys. Uh, where the T does still stand for the, the F does not stand for five. Um, <laughs> And so we, we kind of liked that play uh, on that acronym. But the other subtitle was 10 interesting people and 25 standard white guys. And that, <laughs> that seemed to carry through for uh, quite a lot. And actually, in the first run, our 25 standard white guys liked it a lot because it meant they escaped all the media stuff. We, uh, our class was in line behind astronauts who had been waiting to fly since uh, the end of the Apollo and Skylab programs. And they carried the first four flights, the shuttle test flights, and uh, two other flights beyond that. And then our group started to get tapped to go four flights. Uh, my turn finally came around and was in an assignment in uh, late 1983 and a flight in uh, October of 1984. When the press release came out announcing our crew, it of course announced that Sally Ride would be making her second flight and Kathy Sullivan would be doing a spacewalk. And there was this wave of delight and excitement across the Johnson Space Center, all of our colleagues swarming to us, super excited that you'll get to be the first woman to fly twice, and you'll get to be the first woman to do a spacewalk. And Sally and I would look at each other, and we said, these people have not been paying attention to geopolitics. 
the press release about our flights probably already in the diplomatic pouch in Moscow, and guaranteed the Soviet program will bring Svetlana Savitskaya back for a second flight, undoubtedly with the spacewalk, and they've got many months before our flight. And so sure enough, in July of 1984, Svetlana got her second flight and got her spacewalk, uh, and when I met her finally in 1985, I said, you owe us a second flight in a spacewalk, you know. <laughs> we did this for you, you know, don't... So, the shuttle hatch is right to the back of that scene where the technician in the white jumpsuit is standing. And what, what are we doing in this moment? Well, the way we, everyone got loaded into the shuttle that day just happened to mean Sally and I would go in last. And so we're actually sort of just standing idly in this white room. And we look around and, and spot the cameras that are monitoring everything, and we sort of realize, we should probably look like we're doing something more significant. <laughs> and the next thing we said to each other was, we've all seen enough movies, let's synchronize our watches. <laughs> so we're in fact pretending to synchronize our watches. And we're actually sort of saying to each other, do you think we can stress this out anymore? You know, what do you think Walter Cronkite is saying? Uh, and to our complete delight, when we landed seven days later, you know, our colleagues had saved up all the press clippings and coverage of the flight, lots of which had to do with this day. I mean, what a dramatic day. We've had a woman aboard a spaceship twice, and nothing really bad happened. But oh my goodness, we're going to put two on. Who knows? <laughs> so, so big press coverage, and 2A1, this, I mean, this image was everywhere, and 2A1, the caption read, Kathy Sullivan and Sally Ride synchronized their watches before boarding the space shuttle Challenger. <laughs> So um, that was a delightful seven-day flight. It had a lot of Earth science activities involved in it, which I was the lead on given my academic background. Uh, we deployed a satellite designed to monitor uh, the Earth's radiation budget that served for 20-some years making critical measurements. And Dave Liesman and I, of course, did a three-and-a-half-hour spacewalk to test some tools that proved it would be possible to refuel satellites on orbit. That Sounds sort of trivial. We all refuel our cars, you know, every some several days. But when you fill this, the propellant tank up on a satellite, you seal it and cap it and wire safety wire that cap and then put another cap on top of that. And so the refueling challenge is get all those caps off, which doesn't sound too hard, except the propellant is super nasty stuff. It's extremely toxic and it's super explosive. And so the safety challenge became get all those caps off, put in a fuel line, but all the while you're doing that, there have to be two physical barriers between the propellant and the crew. Now, can you figure out how to refuel the tank in your car without ever having a clear pathway into the tank? That was the engineering challenge we had to solve in designing those tools. Uh, worked, worked wonderfully. Uh, not, not, not in the end a capacity that's yet ever been used, although I think you'll see it coming around in the next five years to ten years. Uh, you know, when you land from a flight, you've this peak experience, you've been the center of attention as you become the main crew, and you land and you are, you are not even yesterday's news. I mean, the world has moved on, there's another crew to be getting ready. Uh, it was shocking to me how instantly this really vivid experience seemed surreal. I almost couldn't imagine I'd actually done it. I'm looking at photos of the Earth from orbit that I know I took, and I kind of can't remind myself I really took it. I'm looking at photos of me floating up by the ceiling on a space shuttle, and I'm sort of going, well, no, that really is me. You know, how come it's not a more vivid memory? Uh, and worst of all, you're now at the very back of a long line of astronauts that are waiting for their turn to fly, and you have no idea when you're going to move towards the front of the line. I was really lucky to get back into the queue just a few months later on a spectacular assignment, uh, the, the crew that would take the Hubble Space Telescope to orbit for the first time. And over the years, but in particular as I researched this book, uh, I, I came to this really crazy appreciation of how aligned with my own life story the evolution of Hubble itself is. And I'll, I can best illustrate it this way, I think. This is a pretty famous painting that was done by an artist named Chesley Bonestell. It appeared in a magazine ca called Collier's in the United States in 1952. And the article that accompanied it is illustrating Werner von Braun's great visions 
for what may happen on the space frontier, what capabilities may come to pass in the years ahead. And if you read the text, you know, this craft here is described as a shuttle. It's tailor-built just to go back and forth the first few hundred miles from the surface of the Earth to this destination, which is clearly a space station in the Arthur C. Clarke kind of mode. And this thing here, I don't know, it always reminds me of a medicine caplet that's been pulled apart. But if you read the article, it's described as a space telescope. And this little thing here, of course, is an astronaut that's working on that telescope. The two things that really struck home with me about this painting, and I only came across this painting in 1985 when I was assigned to the Hubble crew. It was painted in the year I was born, which was six years before Sputnik. It's five years after the end of World War II. There's, not, there's no such thing as orbital rockets yet. There's been V2s, ballistic, but nothing orbital yet. That's six years Anything in orbit is six years in the future. Humans in orbit are 10 years in the future, the first ever. And yet the scale of this imagination, uh, and then to make it even more interesting and, and really bring it home for me personally, when I saw this in 1985, I had flown on that vehicle. It turned out to be white and shaped differently, but there will be a shuttle that goes back and forth with some frequency had happened. The particulars were different, but I had flown on that vehicle. We had this started on the drawing boards. I had already been party to some of the very early engineering concepts for how do you build a station. It was going to end up a different shape. You know, that circular design fell away as other factors came into play. But I have flown on this. This has been built. It's out in California. I'm about to go out and start working on it. And these little guys, you know, bopping around with little rocket packs, uh, my crewmate on Hubble is Bruce McCandless, who's that famous image you've seen of a lone astronaut hanging against the backdrop of Earth, a football field away from the shuttle. That's Bruce. He was going to be my spacewalking buddy on the Hubble flight. And I, it just really was a profound impact on me to take into scale how much had happened to turn you know, science fiction and a futuristic engineering vision into reality in the span, I was 33 years old at the time, uh, a, third of a, a third of a human life, a quarter of a professional career, this was all becoming real. And, and I was not a, spectator, not a spectator anymore, like I had been as a young girl, but now a participant. So Hubble actually ended up looking like, not very Tylenol capsule at all. When I first saw it in this gigantic, super clean room, uh, I really felt like I was looking at a spectacular piece of jewelry or fine table silver from Tiffany's. It just needed some lovely turquoise wrapping around it, and it would have been you know, exactly right. Uh, this is an extraordinary uh, facility designed just to assemble very precise satellite instrumentation. This whole wall here is the size of a US basketball court stood up on its end. And all of that grating is uh, in front of massive filters and fans that push all the air from one end of the chamber to the other. So if, if any bit of dust ever got through all of those filters up here, the air would be moving fast enough all the way along, it would never settle onto the floor. Uh, and everyone stayed downwind of the telescope to make sure any junk we brought with us you know, went the other way. And you sort of can see how togged up all the engineers are. Just getting to where they would let you in this chamber was about like getting dressed up well enough to go outside the airlock. It was crazy. Hubble had been designed, uh, the idea for Hubble began in 1946. The engineering was sort of there to make it feasible in 1946. Astronomers were not convinced. You know, there hadn't been rockets yet, remember. Uh, by the mid-1960s, there's been a few small satellites to do astronomy from orbit. Science, scientists can now see and are more convinced that a big telescope with a large mirror could really be revolutionary if it was in orbit. And so the National Academy of Sciences in the United States blesses the prospect. In the early 1970s, NASA really starts to toy with the concepts. What shape would it be? How would you do it? One idea was driving, that was driving a lot of this was completely new to Hubble. And that was, I'm not going to think of this as a satellite that does some astronomy. I'm going to think of this as an observatory. Just like when I build an observatory on the top of a mountain, I mean for many groups of scientists over decades to be able to bring new instruments up. I'm going to use the same mountaintop. I'm going to use the same mirror. 
but I'm going to use this instrument and then that instrument and technology will get better and I'll do cutting edge science from this mountaintop for decades. We have to be able to do that with the space telescope if it's going to be worth the big investment. And so the design engineers working on Hubble in its earliest days came up with, with an architecture, a layout that would make it possible for people in spacesuits. So anybody ever seen the cartoon sumo wrestlers? That's, that's pretty equivalent. Clumsy gloves, rugged helmets. I want you to be able to go up there and take bits out, put new bits in, repair and replace. And so they wrapped all the equipment around the outside of the telescope. And this is just meant to give you a sense of the many different devices that you could repair or replace on Hubble. The battery packages, the cameras that takes the spectacular images we've all seen, uh, scientific instruments, a spectrograph or another imager, uh, and other electronics that make it all work. Put all that in kitchen cabinets, if you will, that are sort of readily openable. Spacewalkers can anchor their feet at different locations on the telescope, open the doors, take things out, and so on. When Bruce and I are assigned to Hubble in 1985, the architecture exists. Some of the boxes have been given really easy-to-use fittings, very standard fittings, so you don't need a, a different wrench or gadget for each one. Uh, but really, it was the science instruments here, gyros, batteries, they were kind of tailor-made for spacewalkers to work on them. Right up until about 1985, what NASA thought it would do is only have astronauts do those jobs, science instruments, gyros, batteries, and all the other stuff, you know, the harder stuff, the guts of the electrical system. We'd, we'd bring Hubble back to Earth about every five years to do that. We could have ground technicians with, you know, without the fat gloves. But by 1985, the world knew the shuttle was not going to be as inexpensive as had been promised. It was not going to fly as often as had been promised. And it's kind of a dirty vehicle. It always has sort of gases and dust around it, which would you know, wreak havoc with any precision mirror. And so around the time Bruce and I start working, NASA, NASA officials realize if we ever bring this thing back to Earth, it's probably going directly into the National Air and Space Museum and never getting back into orbit. And so suddenly, all these other boxes have to be transformed also into devices that astronauts can service. And so the work we did in these five years is about the creative and inventive process of taking a pretty standard ratchet wrench, but adapting it so it really can work in outer space and with spacesuits, maybe a sort of standard power tool and adapting it. Power tools we have in our garages all have lubricants in them. Lubricants vaporize away and don't work in space, so you can't just grab your skill drill and go up into orbit. Uh, and that other much more exotic equipment that would make it possible to repair and replace uh, these other gadgets. So that's a two-layer story. One layer is the choreography. How do you, what's the sequence of steps? How do you actually get this done? Uh, if I want to go up to one of those kitchen cabinets and turn the latch that holds it shut, if I just float up there in zero gravity and turn the latch, the latch is not moving. I'm moving the other way. So anywhere I might have to turn a wrench or pull on a box, I need to have some platform I can lock my feet into. Let's look at the entire telescope. You see a, you know, it's, it's not a super accurate model, but it's, it's got all the right dimensions. Underwater, in a large tank in Huntsville, this is me and this is Bruce McCandless, and we're going around and checking that all these yellow pathways are the handholds that can get us to anywhere we would need to get to. There are sockets, any place we might need to stop, where we can plug in one of those foot platforms. Uh, and over here, we're practicing with a, a mock-up, a model, of one of those refrigerator-sized scientific instruments. It's just got you know, screen door mesh on it because we want to be able to move it through the water without a lot of, of effort. But again, the dimensions are right, and we're actually practicing or testing here. These are the handles the engineers originally thought would be all that you need to move this thing in and out. And we've tested that already and found out the yellow ones are not enough. And so we've quickly made some white handles and we're just trying other arrangements to make sure we know what kind of handles will the astronauts need that ever have to go up and do this. Lots of that choreography, starting at this level of not terribly detailed and over those years getting more and more detailed uh, on, the, on the choreography of things. And then of course, um, inventing 
tools. Some, as I said, adaptations of hardware store tools. This is basically an adaptation off of a standard hardware store ratchet wrench. What are the differences? You need the handle to be fatter so it fits easier in your fat gloved hand. Uh, you know, you often, anyone who's worked with a ratchet wrench knows you often have your hand on the shaft as you ratchet the wrench because it won't really uh, back drive correctly. You can't get both hands to that geometry in a spacesuit, hardly ever. And so we put a big mushroom cap about this big at the top of that wrench so you didn't have to grip anything. You could just push with your hand or you even could use that uh, as a screw. And a torque limiter because all of the bolts are very fine scaled on Hubble, and if you crank one too hard and lock it in or strip it, uh, we're not going to actually let you come back to Earth. We're just going <laughs> to cut your tether and send you away. Um, uh, so this is me and this is Bruce McCandless with um, Barry Henson, an uh, engineer from British Aerospace. This is the actual flight solar array on Hubble out at its assembly site in California. You can see how closely spaced those connectors are this is, these are my hands, just in latex gloves, and you can pretty well tell I can't even get my fingers in between those connectors with a latex glove on. And I'll tell you, they're really stiff. They don't come loose easily. You've got to put a lot of heft on those to loosen them, uh, which you're just not at all going to be able to do in a spacesuit glove. We found no pliers-like instrument that could fit in between there. And another thing to notice is there's not much of a jacket on these cables. So if you wrench that connector and happen to push your hand real hard against the cable, you'll pull wires loose. So the good news is you'll get the connector off, and the bad news is three of the circuits in that cable, cable won't work anymore. Once again, we're going to cut your tether and send you away. You're not coming home. Uh, so this was a pretty clever invention by one of our tool designers named Michael Withy to create a, a connector tool that could reach into this thick forest of connectors and get enough force onto the little ring to open them up. Uh, we took all of these tools. That's also on the Hubble out in the real world. The other thing Bruce and I did, we insisted on doing, is every single tool is going to be fitted and checked on every single bolt and fitting on the telescope. Uh, we are that anal and maniacal, but that's not why we did that. We did that because we had watched two other NASA missions go up and try to repair or retrieve satellites that had failed while they were already in orbit without any of this foresight applied to them. And in both cases, what the engineers had to do was take the drawing that described how the satellite was built and create their tools based on what that drawing showed. And in both cases, there was some small thing on the satellite and I mean about the size of a button on, on a gentleman's shirt, a small thing on the satellite that prevented one of the critical tools from fitting. And it put the whole mission into massive improvisation mode to try to overcome that problem or get around that issue. And NASA's full of clever people. They succeeded in both cases. But you can't put a large complex instrument that you've been promising to maintain for 15 years into orbit and wonder if the wrench is going to fit. You know, wonder if the connector tool is going to work. So Bruce and I had resolved just our own personal commitment. No Hubble servicing crew will ever, ever have to say the words, hey, guys, this doesn't fit. So every single fitting, every single bolt. Uh, some of the bolts that we used this wrench on, uh, those, the bolts we used that wrench on through the whole telescope came from two vendors, and they made the bolts just slightly different. Uh, and we found... With one of them, that was, there was no problem, just fine, fit, it fit, it moved, uh, great. We tested this also in super cold conditions so that if our tools shrank, we knew that they would still fit. The other vendor, it fit on the bolt fabulously and we cranked the bolt to loosen it, that worked too, and then we discovered the wrench was frozen onto the bolt. Could not get it off. Happily, there's 2,000 ground technicians and we had ways to solve this. Slight difference in the outer finish of that bolt compared to the other one made it lock up on every one of those bolts. And so an engineer, whose picture I will show you in a moment, hand-filed 1,100 bolts on the Hubble Space Telescope to be sure, again, we are never going to have it happen. That's why, hey, guys, I can't get the wrench off. You know, this is not going to happen. Um, another gadget we had to create was, I mentioned you have to have someplace you can plug in a platform and anchor your feet in. Big thing here was it's got a lot of ways to adjust. 
And when you're already in it, your toe goes under here, your heel locks under this thing. Once you're already in it, just the touch of a toe, you can pitch yourself this way or swivel yourself that way without spending the time to get out and make an adjustment. Time is the most precious asset on a spacewalk. For Bruce and I, one of our problems was this thing is big and heavy. This thing's in total about, four, about this long, weighs about 35 pounds. And if we had to go outside and fix something on the deployment mission, the robotic arm was going to be busy holding the telescope up above the payload bay. We would have to move hand over hand and somehow transport this gadget to some location on the telescope so we could work. The last thing you want is this 35-pound widget wafting around on the end of a tether as you move along. The outer skin of the telescope is about the thickness of a beer can. So this thing at 35 pounds is not going to do well on that. So we had to create a tether that was rigid. You could plug this thing into the tether, push the tether back here, tighten it down so it was rigid. You could move along, pull back around and put it in. And that, uh, like that foot plate, that foot plate and this tether are still in use today. Just as we had inherited some good ideas from earlier efforts and built on them, uh, the Hubble ideas have carried on forward as well. Well, five years of work. Uh, it was only meant to be a year and a half when we were first assigned, but the Challenger, of course, exploded in January of 1986. Hubble was delayed. That time, the, only good, the only silver lining in that time delay was it gave us time to work on all those other boxes that needed to be modified. It was otherwise a horrendous experience. And we're finally in 1990 and a few weeks before launch, and we go down to the Kennedy Space Center for the full-up dress rehearsal for our countdown. Uh, we launched on April 24th, 1990, uh, got Bruce and I prepared to go out on a spacewalk if something broke in the deploy sequence when we were racing against the clock. Uh, this is the next day, April 25th. This bit down here is a multi-billion dollar, 200,000 pound spaceship. This bit up here is about a 50,000 pound, multi-billion dollar spaceship. This distance right here is about 10 inches. So right now you have those two spaceships flying in very close formation at 17,500 miles an hour. And a moment after this picture is taken, Lauren Shriver fires the thrusters on Discovery and backs the spacecraft away. Now, I have a, a sort of personal tragedy part of this story for me, is remember Bruce and I began working on Hubble in 1985. Our other three crewmates joined us in about 1989. And here's this magic moment everyone's been working for for decades. You would think there were five pairs of eyes pasted at that set of windows right there. There were three pairs of eyes, because this, this solar array had hung up and not unfolded correctly. And so Bruce and I had gone down below and hopped in our spacesuits and dived into the airlock and grabbed our wrenches. And we're, we're racing outside to crank that solar array out by hand. And we're racing with the ground engineers who are trying to figure out if there's some other way to solve this problem, like maybe a software workaround. And happily for Hubble, but tragically for me, the ground guys won. Uh, <laughs> and so at this magical moment we've waited years and years for, See this little part of a circle right here? That's the back door of the airlock. And Bruce and I, you go through that door, you're in a six-foot diameter sterile white can. And that's where Bruce and I were when Hubble was deployed. <laughs> so we're all back on Earth, and we're eagerly waiting this fabulous first image. We're going to have our favorite picture from Mount Palomar or something here, and Hubble will come back with a picture that will dazzle us all. And of course, we discover it can't see straight. Uh, and as a gentleman in writing in Popular Mechanics wrote, it was as if an eagle had turned into a bat. Uh, the senior senator most responsible for all of NASA's funding, who's a short dynamo of a woman, it was rather less kind. She said Hubble is a techno-turkey. Uh, it, it really felt questionable for quite some time whether this would be the end of NASA's science program or the end of NASA overall. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't judge human teams by whether they manage to never make a mistake because I've never seen a human team that somehow never makes a mistake. I judge by what do you do? How do you respond? And the Hubble team turned to and went through every imaginable concept for how do you restore Hubble's sight. It's either fix the mirror or it's fix the light. And eventually they realized the secret was you have to find a way to fix the light. 
the light that bounced off the distorted mirror, bring it back to form. By the way, how bad is the mirror? It's an eight-foot diameter mirror. Uh, pluck, those of you who have it, pluck a piece of hair out of your head, cut it into 25 slices. It's about one of those slices. It's incredibly minuscule error, but devastating for astronomy. And the answer turned out to be, uh, get into the middle of the telescope and put in corrective optics. Because although the mirror team had screwed up, that was the bad news, they had screwed up very precisely. And so, <laughs> if you're gonna, yeah. So you could, you could, and we did, do the math and say, you know, light was supposed, supposed to be like this, is like this, here's the corrective terms. Grind, grind those corrective terms into mirrors, turns out to be mirrors for Hubble, not lenses like my eyeglasses, but same principles. And so here in 1993, you see Jeff Hoffman riding the robotic arm like a cherry picker, his colleague, Story Musgrave down here getting some equipment ready. They're going to open up the big barn doors back here. They're going to take out the lowest priority scientific instrument. They're going to put into its place an exactly the same size and shape box that instead of having scientific detectors has this cluster of mirrors that will extend up and intercept the light and bounce it around until it's back into the uh, waveform that it ought to have. Interesting example of creative lateral thinking, that whole idea, the idea of how do you get the mirrors into the middle of the telescope, uh, came about when a, an engineer named Jim Crocker was in his shower in, a, in his hotel room in Holland at one of these brainstorming meetings. And he's a pretty tall guy. You know, the showers mounted, shower heads mounted on a rod like this. And the housekeeping staff had evidently been shorter than Jim. So he undoes the handle and he moves it up and adjusts the shower head and the light bulb goes on. We could take the scientific instrument box, put a rod at the inside corner, put the mirrors we need on arms like this shower head, have a little motor that will drive the arm up when we, can, when we tell it to, and little latches and springs that will let the, the shower head arms spring out to just the right position and put all these mirrors in just the right place. And I mean, this needs to be two tenths of an inch to have it all work. Uh, and that's what they went and engineered to do. So how well did that work? Uh, these are the five names, seven names, excuse me, everyone sort of knows from that first servicing flight, the crew that uh, uh, Dick Covey and Ken Bowersox that were the pilot and commander, Story Musgrave, Tom Akers, Kathy Thornton, uh, Jeff Hoffman that were the spacewalkers, Claude Decollier from the European Space Agency who ran the cherry picker. Uh, those are the famous names from this first servicing flight, but right behind them and making it all possible are these engineers that we had been working with for five years. Uh, the team leader was Ron Sheffield. He's on his second career here. He did a 30-year career as a combat army helicopter pilot. Now he's spent another 30 years on Hubble. These two guys also became mainstays of Hubble. Hubble was their first job out of college right into building the tools and making all this work. And their backstories, where they came from, how they came to be here. Uh, I had never had two minutes of social time to really learn that while we were working together. One of my joys of writing the book was getting to visit with them and, and learn that backstory. So these are the names you also should have heard at that point. So here's Hubble when we discovered it doesn't see straight. Here's Hubble right after the fix was put in. That's the spec, that's performing to the spec it should have been doing from the beginning. But as important as we could hit this oh goodness me moment and recover from it, because thanks to the maintenance capability, as important, we could keep upgrading instrumentation on Hubble as technology advanced. Just think of the speed with which our digital cameras and cell phones have been advancing. And so this camera that the camera that took both of these images, the camera number one and camera number one with the corrective optics is now camera number three that's aboard the shuttle. And here's the same galaxy in camera number three taken just a year ago. So to keep Hubble, to keep its, all of its equipment at state of the art, at high reliability, and over 30 years, which is twice as long as the engineers promised, by the way. Hubble was only promised to be a 15-year observatory. It turns 30 in a couple of weeks, and it's continued to be state of the art and stay at the cutting edge. And that, again, is is all down to the careful engineering and foresight that engineers like these guys did, whose you know, names and stories 
have never been given the due and put in the foreground. Here's one of my absolutely favorite Hubble images. It's called the Hubble Deep Field. If you take an instrument like Hubble and you point it to a patch of the sky that you believe is black and empty, this patch happens to be in the Big Dipper, and you let it stare for a while, this is what's in black and empty space. And uh, this object here and that object here, those, are, those actually are probably stars. Every other colored dot in here, it's a galaxy. So where astronomers were convinced you've got dark, empty sky, thousands and thousands of galaxies of other Milky Ways as far as the eye can see. Uh, well, I'm going to close with a little explanation of why I chose the title that I did. Um, I, I touched a number of times on the point that some names are more known than others in the whole saga of Hubble and who helped make it happen. Uh, mine is actually not one of the most well-named names, which is fine. Hubble has still, and the work I did on Hubble, uh, has long been both the work I'm most proud of in all of my astronaut career and the work that gives me the greatest satisfaction. And so I have for many years said, you may not, it doesn't matter if you know my name or not, I know I have a fingerprint on every discovery and every advance that Hubble has delivered because uh, I was on that team. I did my bit and helped that happen. And as I was doing the research for the book, uh, and fingerprints on Hubble was sort of what I started with, I was doing research for the book, and I discovered the last spacewalker to touch Hubble on the final servicing mission, a gentleman named John Grunsfeld. He took a picture of the outside of Hubble, which actually has now astronaut handprints on it, where spacesuit gloves touched the surface and scuffed it just enough that it, where they touched weathers a little bit differently than the rest of Hubble. Uh, and so John took this picture showing the literal, tangible, visible handprints that are on Hubble. And, and that just sweetened the point for me. Because those gentlemen I showed you the picture of, uh, the hundreds of, of gentlemen, it really was all men at the time, that gave Hubble that architecture, that gave it its first ideas back to 1946. You know, all of those people also have, in a metaphorical sense at least, a handprint on Hubble. So these handprints that actually are up there on the outer skin, uh, they remind me of the tip of an iceberg. They are there, they are vivid, they're dramatic, you can see them, they're kind of stunning. But if you stop and remember the reality of icebergs, you're reminded that you're seeing just a small fraction of all that's really there. Uh, and that's certainly the case with the Hubble Space Telescope. So I think I've spoken about as long, if not maybe a bit longer than I really ought to have, because I'm sure there are a lot of wonderful questions in the audience that I would be delighted to answer. Before we do that, let me thank you again for coming out tonight and for giving me your attention. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. All right, I, I think it's right to let the applause go on a little bit there. Um, thank you so much, uh, Kathy, for that fantastic lecture. So we're going to take questions now. Um, uh, we usually pass a microphone around, but uh, with, no, just yell. with no word of a lie in this, uh, is, in this day and age of coronavirus, if you guys yell the question down to me, I will repeat it. That's the safest thing, believe me. I've been doing it all day. And favour to children. Uh, and, uh, and, and so if you've, if you've got any questions at all, put your hands up, and that means everybody, all right, uh, across the age. I'm going I'm to start with a question, and then we'll take some from the audience. And so think up your questions as you can, all right? This is your chance. Um, so I know I have, I have children now, and actually what they always want to know, I mean, they lived in Houston for a while. They always want to know what you were like at school. I mean, they always assumed that all the astronauts were the brightest and the best at everything and always knew they wanted to be an astronaut. What was it like for you at school? Um, I, I was always a, a good to decent student, I would say. Uh, and what really was driving me from a young age was I was fascinated by maps and geography and you know, the sort of the adventurous lives that I saw Jacques Cousteau and the early astronauts living. I, that never led me to the declaration, you know, this tall, I want to be an astronaut. For me, it was just some people have these really adventurous, inquisitive lives. I can tell that would be really cool. I want my life to somehow be like that. So it was never a title or a job destination for me. Uh, in grade eight, we had to take a class that was aimed to sort of widen our horizons and make us think about college and kind of double down a bit maybe on our studies through upper school so we would be well qualified for university. 
uh, and I discovered a brochure that described junior year abroad programs for the same cost of studying in the States, you could go live for a year somewhere else. And I right there said, that's what I want to do. Uh, turned over the brochure, read the sort of academic level qualifications you needed. And so that, you know, that bumped up my level of investment in school because I now want to be sure I, I can pick a university like that. I won't just get told, sorry, we, you know, you can only go over here. Um, so again, it didn't sharpen my focus on, uh, on what I want to do but it gave me a destination that I could get to by really investing. I wanted, I wanted to get as much learning every day out of school that I could, because I now had a place I wanted to get to. I didn't think about, uh, well, actually, I chose my college to study languages, because that was a talent I have. And thank heavens, my college decided, had a rule that you had to take three science classes your first year if you thought you were going to be an arts and language major. Um, I thought this was a horrible idea. I mean, I argued, yeah. I, you know, argued, and I didn't yell, that, but I, you know, cried and whined a little bit and lost all the arguments, and that's when I discovered geology and oceanography. And the lives I saw my young professors leading were right on point with this adventurousness and inquisitiveness. Uh, and happily, uh, they were really uh, very conge congenial professors. So when a 17-year-old language major marches up and says, what exactly do you guys do? You know, and instead of chiding me for asking such a stupid sounding question, uh, they said, we do great things, what do you want to know? And we had this wonderful discussion and I changed majors and off I went. Astronaut is total serendipity, I'm finishing up my PhD, I'm actually trying to get in deep sea submersibles and go down and look at the seafloor. And NASA pops up saying, well, we're building a research ship too, it's gonna go this way. <laughs> Uh, and I loved oceanographic expeditions and planning them and fitting them out and going and doing them. Uh, and the worst that's going to... They're going to have a thousand, thousands of people apply. They're going to take very few. The worst that happens is they say no, and you go on and be an oceanographer. So I applied. Fantastic. Very happenstance. Fantastic. I, I would say it doesn't have to be you're always the, you know, the great, smart wizard in school. Uh, it really helps a lot if you feed your curiosity and you love to learn. Uh, but you don't have to worry too early on if you don't know exactly what destination you're headed for. That's reassuring for me. Right, <laughs> let's, uh, let's take uh, some questions. So I'll just have a look around. Yeah, uh, yes, here. Shout your question out to me, and then I will shout out to everyone else. Okay, so the question is, what advice would you give a young child who wants to become an astronaut, or indeed someone in the mid-40s? Or... Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um... Dream big, stay curious, work hard, and don't ever let anybody tell you different. No one gets to edit what you're interested in. Good, good. Okay, let's have another question. Let's, let's just go here. How many years so, of training? So when you're selected in as an astronaut, your whole group will go through a year-long curriculum that's essentially crash graduate school of every subject that has anything to do with spaceflight. Spaceflight physiology, orbital mechanics, engineering, and so forth. Uh, then you'll go get plugged into worker bee jobs. So you'll be in support roles, other invisible support roles, but learning how a spaceflight comes together by doing the building block bits. And you'll probably rotate through those every 14 to 18 months. Then you'll get tapped on the shoulder and say, you are gonna be on this flight in this role. And that will start another curriculum, another orchestrated curriculum that will be at least a year long to take the general knowledge you've got and sharpen it finer and finer till it's right on fine point with the particulars of what you will do on that flight. There's people who fly on station nowadays, that one-year curriculum can be as long as three years because they have so many things going on when they're living on the station for six months. You really have to love learning. Thank you. Uh, let's have another one. Uh, where, where? The lady in green. There you go. Go on. Sorry, we're favoring shorter people. <laughs> yeah, how do you cope with the tension and the danger in space? Um, I think you need to think about the, the risk and danger level of spaceflight. I mean, what I did was think about it before, as I made my decision of whether to apply. Because if you apply and if you're accepted, you've got to be able to just you know, face 
those risks and hazards and deal with them and be part of solutions. You can't, you can't get in and suddenly be the person that just is paralyzed or you know, can't be part of the, of the solution if something starts to go wrong. So I gave that a lot of thought. There's, it's dangerous and there's always going to be a certain amount of risk no one can ever get rid of. It's human beings doing things, right? People make mistakes. They miss something. They overlook something. It's unlikely to ever be an intentional error error in this arena, but it's going to happen. So it's always going to be at least this much risk. And you need to decide, well, what is this all worth? What is accepting that risk worth to humanity or to science or to your sense of adventure or you know, it could be your desire for fame? It's got to be up to you. But you have to really think that through. Um, and, there, you know, interesting, I really never thought of it as tension or uh, stress. It was... It was eagerness and drive to always learn more and keep moving. Uh, but I'd never, I really kind of never felt that as some outward pressure on me to do that. It, it was a, a drive that came from within. Thank you. Uh, let's have some more. Um, let us go to this side. Um, gentleman at the back there. Yeah, go for it. If you just shout for me so we can hear the question. Oh. Yeah, so Hubble's successor... Uh, and sing out if I've misheard your question. Hubble's successor is a telescope called the James Webb Space Telescope. It's going to have a, a very large mirror made of a mosaic of, I think it's 18 hexagonal mirrors, so 18 mirrors this big each, mosaic together. And that's going to sit on what rather looks like a, um, a pastry boat, <laughs> to be honest, uh, of a sun shield. It's all going to fold up in a rocket fairing, and it's going to live a million miles away from Earth. So... You, you might think, and some of us have said, didn't we just learn a lot from being able to have access to a Hubble and maintain it? Now you're making comparably expensive and powerful telescope and putting it a million miles away. Um, you know, that, that counter-argument that I just stated would be a better one if NASA had not retired the space shuttle because the other reality now is no space agency has a vehicle that can take up the kind of spare parts and equipment and replacement bits and uh, be a servicing platform the way the shuttle was able to do. Might there be robotic vehicles that can do that in the future? Yes, possible. Uh, but again, you would have had to think ahead in how you designed web to be sure that it had an architecture that a robotic servicing device could get up to and work on. And, and that's been omitted from the web. Thank you. Uh, let's go to the middle section here. Oh, on the front here. Let's go there. Yes, go on. Oh, you've got lots of questions. Let's start with one, and then, and then maybe we'll come back to you for another one. So let's have one. What's your best question, do you think? Uh, what did it feel like to do a spacewalk? Great question. Well, for starters, it's not like walking at all. I mean, that's really not exactly the right word. Um, the 12 men who walked on the moon, they actually walked, but they had some gravity to do that. If you're around the space shuttle or the space station, you're, it's more like swimming. You move more with your hands. Um, you, would feel, you really would feel just like you feel here, except you would be much bulkier because of the spacesuit you were wearing. Uh, and the interesting thing is you can move gigantic objects like this entire podium here, which is, except for the fact it's fixed to the floor. Um, so, let, so let's use Kevin. Um, <laughs> This not-so-gigantic object here uh, <laughs> that I probably could not really lift off the floor, I could lift off the floor with one finger in zero gravity. I would just give a little push. No, no, no. no. He, he wouldn't even know. I would just give a little push here, and he would start drifting up towards the ceiling and go away. So. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> do, I mean, do you still miss being in space. All my friends who've flown say they miss being in space. If you don't miss the fun of playing in zero gravity and having those views, you're out of your mind. <laughs> uh, but, and, you know, I will say, I mean, I do, I'm fluent in French and German and apparently zero gravity because I dream in all three with some regularity. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, another question. So, yes, uh, just, just there, there, there. Yeah, so I joined NASA in 1978 and, question. sorry, did I, I, I uh, was a reservist oceanography officer in our Navy. The question was, did I find that a help in my training? Um, I joined NASA in 1978. 
the astronaut interview was my first ever real job interview, and astronaut was my first full-time job. Uh, and it was a full 10 years later before I took a commission in the Navy. So, I, I mean, it, it did help, but I had had already a decade of sort of psyching out NASA and how it works and uh, learning how to be effective in, in that culture and in that organization. It, in a bit, it, in, a, in a way, it was sort of a little bit the other way around because I, NASA has a sort of, everyone who f sort of formed NASA spaceflight came out of military backgrounds. So the backdrop culturally is a lot like uh, the military culture and I was not as lost, I would say, when I took my commission in the Navy as I might have been otherwise. Thank you. Fantastic. Right, so I am going to try and find someone up here. Yeah, there's in, one. In the lights. Right there. Yep. Great question. How is the team dynamic in space? Um, uh, space shuttle missions, really through the whole course of shuttle, but particularly while I was there, they're relatively short. They were five to ten or twelve day missions. Uh, and it, broadly, NASA's approach to team dynamics there was, I have things I need done and I picked you guys, and I don't particularly care if you love each other, go get it done. Uh, you, you can decide to never shake his hand again when you come back, or whatever you want, but if you want to go fly twice, figure this out and go get it done. Obviously, with people living and working together in fairly tight spaces for months on end aboard station, you have to give a little more thought to that. And it's, it's not so much how will you uh, work together when things are going well. What you really want to understand is if something starts to go wrong or the stress starts to get high, and it might not be something dangerous is going wrong, it might just be uh, you, we, we tried to do a spacewalk and something didn't work and now we're, we're worried about being able to get that task done. Everyone's going to be more anxious about that. And we all know from our own experience how you know, when, I, when I get anxious, I'll start to default back to certain modes of behavior and, and Kevin will as well and all of you will. So what you want a crew to know is uh, not how can you work together when it's a nice sunny day, but if things start to get a bit tense, what's going to start pulling you apart a bit? You'll, you, this one will get very loud, that one will get very pushy, this one will withdraw a bit and stop uh, communicating or, or you know, enunciating the things they've got to contribute or the things you need to understand. You need each other and you need obviously the commander to have a sense of what that dynamic's likely to be so you can step in and you've got to be active then about drawing people out and sort of getting them back uh, together. Um, so NASA's more thoughtful about that now, but teams, shuttle teams would have their different styles. Some were much brasher teasing styles, some were much more collegial styles. Uh, again, in my era, it was, y'all do whatever style you want, go get it done, and... <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll take one more from up there, right there, and then we'll come back down here. Okay, go for it. Um, yeah, so what are common factors of spacewalk injuries? Um, I actually only know of one uh, injury that is associated with spacewalking. It's certain uh, tears in the shoulder because of the limitations on how the mechanism that lets your shoulder move, limitations on that mechanism. And as spacewalkers can be putting more force trying to move against that mechanism, seems to be producing some tears in some of the shoulder ligaments. Um, you know, the only thing that's moving really fast in outer space is you and any space debris that's around. Everything else is really quite slow. So the kind of injuries we're used to here, slip, fall, impact, uh, those are the least of your worries. There's really not any much likelihood of any kind of high velocity uh, impact or trauma. And even the shoulder injury in the suit, it's not high velocity, it's just extended strain. Thank you. Right, uh, this gentleman here, yeah. What I learned on my first mission, I was able to do better on my second mission. Everything about being effective in orbit. I mean, I, that sounds flippant, and I don't mean it that way, but uh, mobility in zero gravity, staying abreast of the checklist, uh, being engaged in the crew dynamic, uh, effective communications with mission control, you know, all of that was improving through my first space flight. Excellent. Dawn in the middle there. There you go. Sorry. What? Do you mean climate The climate crisis? crisis? Yeah, um, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 the data are really quite unequivocal uh, that the, the Earth is changing, uh, in particular the chemistry of the atmosphere and the train of consequences that come from that. Uh, the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the rates at which it's being added are, you know, unequaled in any geological or historical record we know for at least 800,000 years. Um, 
the planet itself is going to be fine geologically. And the, our Earth's been through many, many cycles and long-term evolution, so the, the planet's going to be fine. Uh, everything that lives on the Earth is subject to some considerable uh, adaptation, destruction, or, or dislocation. Uh, the, the zonal patterns of wind and temperature that we're all used to for centuries of human life, grain grows here, water's here, deserts are here, those sorts of things we are seeing change already. The rate of change is uh, particularly high in the northern and southern latitudes, the Arctic and the Antarctic. Uh, so the, what we will experience, first of all, are the kind of shocks and dislocations that come from flooded urban areas, uh, water stress in places where there are a lot of people living, you know, human concentrations, human populations have concentrated in places where food and water exist, and if those resources move away, you've stranded large populations. Um, so societal fraying, political fragmentation, economic dislocation, um, you know, that's, that's what's in store for us all. Uh, if, but anyone who claims, who wants to assert that the data are not sound enough or there's not real scientific consensus, um, all, who here has had a major surgical operation in their life? Every one of you went down that course of action with radically less certainty than we have about uh, how the Earth is re responding to CO2. Uh, it's, it is as certain as it should ever need to be for uh, societies to be taking strong action, both on the adaptation and the carbon mitigation side. What, 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 are, you, what are you insinuating about my medical practice there? <laughs> present, present company accepted. <laughs> okay, uh, let's have another question. Let's have a look. Up, up on the back edge there. Uh, uh, up on the back there, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> Great question. Uh, when do you ever get such a wonderful, wonderful invitation to be a movie critic? Um, all depends on the movie. Um, Apollo 13 and The Martian, uh, high marks, you know, limited doses of scientific license, uh, but, but really limited. Um, gravity, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So remember the scenario on gravity. Working on Hubble Space Telescope, bad things happen. Pop over to the space station, more bad things. Pop over to the Chinese station, come home. My two big complaints. <laughs> no... <laughs> No one that breathless and nervous would ever be let into a spacesuit in your hobby. <laughs> ever. Sort of an, an insult to spacewalkers. Um, good looks don't get you everything. That's just an insult to spacewalkers. And, you know, Hubble to station to Chinese station. I will now say a sentence that is exactly as feasible as that scenario. My houseboat was sinking on the Thames, so I walked to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so pleased you described that film that way. Uh, right, right at the back there, there you go. What do I think the future of human spaceflight is? Uh, I, I think they're the, an interesting moment now with the Elon Musks and Jeff Bezos's and Robert Bigelow's and others trying to see if there's uh, what kind of a commercial market there is for other people for whatever reason you might like to go back and forth to low Earth orbit. Uh, real optimists say, you know, stand by, this will quickly be like British Airways flying frequently. Uh, I'm not in that camp. I think the, uh, I don't think there's a really robust demand function, like all of you in this theater and millions more in the UK, wanting to bop back and forth to space. Or, or at least it will be a very long time coming. Um, I'm a little encouraged about human beings going beyond low Earth orbit, uh, by the fact that so many countries are now building their space capacity. And they, they rec I think they recognize in that kind of bold goal both the uh, public motivation and the technological spur uh, that they could get out of pursuing it. I suspect if, uh, if Back to the Moon or Off to Mars really happen, I suspect it will be some coalition or partnership of countries doing it, which, which I think is perfectly fine. Okay, so any questions? Yeah, right at the back there. Yes, thank you. Um, you know, on none of my three flights did we have something you know, that bifurcated. Like, like you said, a dilemma. It's not clear what to do if this, then that. Um, probably the closest to that sort of instance would have been as we were deploying Hubble. Uh, and the trick with that was Hubble was carried aloft, bolted into the payload bay, you know, solar arrays folded up, antennas folded in, bolted down with an electrical power cable in the back. And deploying it amounted to grab it with the arm, undo the, undo the bolts, 
pull the power plug and lift it up. Uh, and once you pull the power plug, it's running on its own batteries. And like anything on its own batteries, it can only go so long on those batteries. Hubble had a particularly steep curve to it. You could go this long, but then things got quickly really bad. And that's why Bruce and I were so ready to hop outside on a spacewalk. You, in that time window, you must get both solar arrays fully out so that they're charging the batteries again. Uh, so that was kind of one real either-or. Uh, most of that complex either-or logic was being done on the ground between Mission Control in Houston and the state, the um, Telescope Control Center in Maryland. Uh, they had a planned sequence. You know, we'll unfold this, and then we'll unfold that, and then we'll unfold this. And as that started to go awry, you know, one group was trying to just fix each problem and carry on down the original sequence. The group in Houston was thinking ahead about the timing and saying, look, while you're stuck here, why aren't we doing these things too? And just you know, keep, keep things moving, not get stuck and mesmerized on one problem. Uh, so we could kind of tell that back and forth was happening, but we were just you know, waiting for them to figure out the next stage of what you want us to do. But you, we, we kind of knew the landscape well enough to know this is probably what they're debating. This is what they ought to come out to say. Uh, we'll see if they do that. Uh, and when the solar array finally jammed, uh, you know, Bruce and I pretty much just at that moment said, we're out of here, we're going to go get in our spacesuits. We, we knew that's what the decision should be before they even said it. It was the pre-agreed decision. It was not we were making this up. But we just went ahead and started down to do that kind of before the ground woke up and said, oh, yeah, you guys should go get dressed. Right, on it. <laughs> Got another question up there. What do I think the next thing is for women in space? That's a great question. Um, so since I did my flights, women have now been in charge of space shuttle missions. They've been the commander. They've been in charge of space station expeditions as commander. Uh, the big job on Earth in Mission Control Center is called flight director. Uh, they've been flight directors. There's been a woman that's been in charge of the entire Johnson Space Center where all of the human spaceflight stuff happens and as high as number two in NASA overall. Um, and of course, uh, there are women now doing spacewalk after spacewalk after spacewalk on the International Space Station, which makes me crazy jealous. Um, uh, I mean, the next big... I would say two things, and one's a little more subtle than the other. Uh, the next big obvious like thing to do or place to go is land on the moon. Uh, but I think the next less obvious but important thing is come to a point where you're, there are many of you in all jobs all the time, anywhere, and no one's even commenting anymore. Because we just know, well, of, of course, all of these, yes, competent, capable people able to do the job and... You know, I don't, I don't care what lavatory or bathroom you work. You, I don't care if you wear a tie or high heels. That doesn't matter. You can do the job. You're welcome to do the job. Come on, make a crew, and off we go. Yes, go on, yes. Ah, Hubble, what's its future? Will they turn it off, or will it die gracefully on its own? Um, I think that will all hinge on James Webb. Uh, Hubble's running fine right now. As far as I know, there's not any technical uh, flaw in it or, or key device that's broken. Uh, so it could go on until a gyro degrades, several gyros degrade. You know, a micrometeorite could hit it later tonight and the whole story would change. But putting that aside, uh, the James Webb is following the same arc as Hubble. It's way late on schedule. It's way over budget. It's, it's right at that everyone's angry at it. Just get it into orbit point that Hubble went through. Um, so if it gets off, off the ground probably next year, and if everything unfolds and operates correctly, uh, then I think NASA will come to that point of asking itself, look, we've, we're spending, it costs this much per year to keep Hubble running, and all the scientists that are using Hubble have had twice as much observing time as we ever promised them, and it's done great things and it costs this much now to run web, and does it really make sense to keep running both? Or, or should we say a graceful goodbye to Hubble? Uh, the last um, repair crew that went up there attached the device to the back of Hubble that would let a space tug go up and grab on and slow Hubble down enough that you could drop it into the ocean at a predicted point and remove the risk of its orbit just slowly decaying until it eventually came down in some random place. Uh, I think what everyone obviously would be worried about is this gigantic 
eight-foot diameter thick slug of glass, bits of which might make it through reentry heating and hit people on the ground. And I think our friend here has her question now. How does Hubble come back down? Um, they, no one's made the exact decision how to make it come back down just yet. Uh, they might have to do that in the next couple of years. Uh, and there are two ways it could come down. Its orbit gets a little bit lower every time it goes around, just a tiny little bit. So one way would be just leave it going around until eventually Earth's gravity wins out and pulls it back down. The problem with that is you wouldn't know exactly where it's going to hit, and it might hit somebody's house. So the other way is there's, um, there's handles on the back of it, and you could take a robotic spacecraft and fly the robot up and have it grab those handles and slow Hubble down by an amount that you had calculated, that you had chosen, and that would let you know it's going to drop right there in the ocean where no one's living. So one of those two, probably the second one. <laughs> okay. Good question. Uh, Great I... question. Oh, it was fantastic questions. If you want to ask two questions, you bring a book full of questions, right? And right. That's how that works. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to take two more questions, and then we're going to bring it to a close. So, uh, lady up there in the back. There you go. Yeah, do I think it's feasible physically and or psychologically for humans to live a long time you know, off the Earth on other planets or in deep space? Um, yes, I think it certainly is. Um, there will be differences that accrue over time. If you're living in a microgravity environment, there will be long-term shifts probably in your vision, certainly in your skeletal composition. Um, there might, might well be medical complications that you'd have to deal with in a chronic sense from those types of things. But, uh, I mean, certainly just a, a, different, uh, a different set of mortality risks than you have here on Earth. But, I mean, do remember, none of us get out of this alive, so eventually this, <laughs> eventually this ends, right? Um, but, yeah, I, I think it certainly is. And one more. Um, and Way up there. There you There's go. One. <laughs> Wait, I couldn't quite hear Would that. you take an internal work experience person on your next mission? <laughs> You're in. <laughs> That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, you'll love our upcoming talks. Head to rigb.org to see what's on and book tickets. And if you can't wait that long, head to our YouTube channel, The Royal Institution, to watch more. Bye. <laughs>